I invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now I want to read verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I do hope that you'll um, keep this uh, New Testament open here because I am going to preach expositorily from it and say in the beginning that the grand purpose of our salvation is that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the thing for which we're saved, is that He might shape or, or make us or conform us to the likeness of Jesus to make us like Him. The ultimate purpose of our salvation is not that we'd have a sure uh, escape from the horrors of hell or a safe passage into the glories of heaven. The grand purpose of our salvation is that we might be made like His Son. That's why He saved us. The Christian life is a life of transformation. Now, I'm not talking this morning about the ultimate transformation that comes when the Lord returns. John talks about this in his epistle. And he says that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And he's talking about that transformation that ultimately comes when we get one glimpse of the dear Lord. But I'm convinced that that's what the Lord, what God wants us to be like today. And that's what He's about in my life now, is to transform me into that likeness here. He wants to get me as far down the road to that ultimate destination as He can. So when Jesus returns, it won't be that much of a change, that much of a difference. Has it ever occurred to you that what God did for Jesus... He does for us. He was born of the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. He was Son of God. We're sons of God. He was created in the image of the invisible God. The Bible says that we're created in the image of the invisible God. He was anointed. We are anointed. He's the light of the world. We're the light of the world. He's priest and king. We're priest and king. It seems to me that the whole theme of Scripture is, is that God wants to create in this world and form in this world others who are just like His Son, Jesus. And that's the grand purpose of our salvation. Now verse 18 of chapter 3 tells us how that comes about and how that happens. And there are three key words in this verse of Scripture that really... Uh, for the want of a better term, or part of the formula. I don't like that really, but these three key words describe or reveal to us how that revelation, how that transformation into the image of God's Son occurs in this life here. So I want you to read it with me, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, circle that word if you've got a pencil, but we all... For in the Old Testament dispensation, Moses was the only one who was privileged to behold the glory of God. But we all, beholding with unfailed face as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory 
just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now the first word is contemplation. For we all, not just the Old Test in the Old Testament dispensation, not just as Moses, but all of us are being transformed, and that is a uh, in the in the New Testament Greek, it's in the passive voice, suggesting that this transforming is not the result of some action of ours. It is something. It is being acted upon. The Christian life is not putting Jesus on a pedestal and imitating Him. It is not an action of ours that enables us to become transformed. It is being acted upon from something outside of ourselves. And the responsibility of this transformation is on Him and on us. So the question is, what is our responsibility in this thing? Well, our responsibility is just to behold Him, to look at Him. And while we're beholding Him, while we're looking upon Him as in a mirror, something is happening to us called transformation. While we are beholding Him, He is transforming us. Isn't that how we're saved, just to look at Him? Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am God, and there is none other. And while Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they were being bitten by these fiery serpents, and they were all dying. They were falling all over the place. God came to Moses, and He said, I want you to take a brazen image of that serpent, that brazen serpent, put it on a pole and set it outside the camp and whomever looks to that serpent will live. There is life in a look. I think one of the greatest tragedies, the greatest eras of the Christian life is the era of a misplaced responsibility. That's how salvation by works comes to be. We assume the responsibility of of saving ourselves. We assume God's responsibility. That's how the idea of that you could fall from grace came to be. It's the idea that if I stay saved, I've got to do some things to affect that. I've got to keep myself saved. One of the greatest errors of the Christian life is the error of a misplaced responsibility. Nowhere is that more true than here. How, I'm, how I become like Jesus is His responsibility and not mine. My responsibility is to just look on Him. Now there are three things I need to say about that look. The first, it is a conscious look. That is, it requires discipline and determination. It requires an effort of heart. In other words, it just doesn't happen by accident. Now what I'm talking about is not just that I get into the Word of God, but that's a part of it. That's what I'm talking about, about about a conscious look, is the discipline of being in God's Word and the discipline of prayer. But I'm also talking about the discipline of a daily meditation in which I fix my mind on Him, my gaze upon Him. For Jesus said, as a man thinketh, so is he. And what he was saying is, is that we become what we consciously 
think on and allow ourselves to think on. If I consciously think on bitterness, I become bitter. If I consciously have in my mind lustful thoughts, then I become lustful. And if I consciously accept the discipline of gazing on Him, I become like Him. It's a conscious, deliberate thing. Alfred Luckett, in one of his commentaries on 2 Corinthians, tells a story about Whistler, the artist. He said that Whistler would go out to a place, to a scene that that was attractive to his fancy, maybe over a river. He'd stand over this embankment and he would stare at the scene, soaking up every aspect of it until every facet of it was was engraved in his memory. And if he had a companion, he'd turn his back to the scene and describe it to his companion. He'd say something like this, the sky is lighter than the water and the, and the houses are the darkest. There are eight houses. The second is the highest. The fifth is the lowest. Each house has a light, had lighted windows. The first house has two lighted windows, one above the other. The second has four, and on and on he'd go. And if he missed anything, he'd turn around. The, the companion would tell him, so he'd turn around. The whole process would start over again. He'd stare at it until every aspect of it was engraved in his memory. I think there are things that we can do to create an environment where we gain on him. You can have religious music in your home and in your automobile instead of secular music. You can have plaques on your wall that remind you of scripture verses, remind you of thoughts that have come to great thinkers about God. You can memorize scriptures and words of hymns and repeat those over. It is the conscious effort to fix our minds upon Jesus, conscious effort to gaze upon Him. It is a consecrated look. A consecrated look. Now the Greek word beholding is in the imperfect tense and it suggests the continuous action without interruption. It's a gaze and not a glance. Now we glance at Jesus about twice, you know, maybe twice on Sunday we come glance at Him. At Christmas time we glance at His birth. At Easter, we glance at His resurrection. That's about it. We glance at Jesus on Sunday morning. We gaze at our watch, I've observed. We glance at Jesus and we gaze at Michael Jordan. We know everything about Him. We know how many points He scores His average. We glance at Jesus and we gaze at Bill Cosby. He's become the folk hero of many of us. We glance at Jesus and we gaze at the world. We glance at Jesus and we gaze at our problems and our circumstances. Oh, that I might look upon Him and gaze upon Him and see Him and behold Him. It is a consecrated look. It is a clear look. Now the scripture says that we all with unveiled face, and what he's saying there is there's nothing that obstructs our view of him. Now there are two connotations in this, and I want to suggest one and the other I'll get to at the end of the sermon. When you hear that one, you know we're nearly through. That'll give you some hope. The first connotation is that there's nothing between our Lord, between us and our Lord, that we might look upon him. Now, there are all kinds of veils that obstruct him from our vision. There's the veil of bitterness that some of you have. 
and the veil of resentment and the veil of, and the veil of envy and unconfessed sin. Now Jesus got all of his got his disciples together, and this is what he said: "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." Now I'm not sure all that was involved in what he said, but I'm not I'm smart enough to know. Soldiers after the cowards and the weaklings had been removed from the army. What he's saying is, is that when there is no hypocrisy, when there is no mixture in your heart, you'll see God. When what you are in here is what you appear out here. When what you see is what you are. When you can come to God with no mixed motives, you shall see Him. It's a clear look. So the first word is contemplation. And the second word is transformation. Metamorphosis comes from that word. One of our young people came up to me at camp. He had one of these uh, Katie dids. Uh, had a hole in his back. He said, "I want you." To, uh, he said, "You remember when you when you taught when you did a children's sermon and and talked about how that that insect breaks open and something else?" Well, I didn't remember that, but I was glad he did. <laughs> it's a it's the picture of this worm that wraps itself in this cocoon and all of a sudden comes out a butterfly. But it is also the word that is used of the transfiguration of Jesus. Now stay right with me here. The word that is used for the transfiguration of Jesus is the word that uses to describe the experience of our becoming like Him. Now, what was, the, what was the transfiguration? You know the, you know the event. Uh, what was that and what was the purpose of it? I suggest to you that what happened in the transfiguration was that Jesus was giving a preview to His disciples of what He would be when He returned. And you say, where'd you get that? Well, I'm fixing to tell you. So you turn to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark with me. Would you do that? the 8th chapter of Mark's Gospel. And every, every uh, uh, text ought to be seen in its context, so I want you to see the last part, chapter 8, which leads into the transfiguration. Now, this is no accident. Watch this. Mark 8, verse 38. Glad to hear those pages turning. Hope it's the Bible you're turning there. For who's, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And He was saying to them, that no, no break here now, and He was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death, until he see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's some of you who will not die until you see this glory he's talking about. And six days later, next verse, he took Peter and James and John. These are the ones who would not die until they saw the glory revealed. He took them on a mountaintop and was transfigured in their midst. Now what is happening here is this is that in that transfiguration, 
God is revealing through Jesus what His glory is and what His glory will be like when He returns. For there is this inner glory that dwells in Jesus, veiled by flesh, and this glory could not be contained any longer, and it burst through this veil of flesh and radiated. Oh, hear me now, my dear friend. That same glory dwells in you. And every believer here this morning who has Jesus Christ living in his heart has this same glory veiled by flesh. And what this transformation he's talking about is, is this. Is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, this action outside of yourself, Jesus begins to be released in your life. And he breaks through this veil that... that hides Him, contains Him, and He releases Jesus in your life so that you radiate Him. Now Moses reflected His glory, but Christians radiate His glory when the Holy Spirit does that act of work upon Him. Now there are two views, as I suggest, with regard to how you live the Christian life. One is, is that you put Jesus on a pedestal, as Charles Shelton said, and imitate what He did. The other is that you have imparted the glory of the Lord, and that glory is released by the Holy Spirit and your submission to Him. Transformation. Did you hear that? is that the same glory that was abiding and residing in Jesus abides and resides in you and is to be revealed, is to be released. Now, that transformation is a process. For the Scripture said, did you see it in the text? That we're being changed from glory to glory. What he's saying there is, is that we're being changed from one degree of glory to the other degree of glory. And it's a process. I'd like to tell you this morning and, be, and, and mean it and believe it, but I can't. That you could walk down the aisle of this church and go through some kind of an experience, say some kind of words, and God would zap you, and all of a sudden you'd be transformed. I'd like to be able to say that. I wish it were true, but it's not. It's a process that goes on and on. It's a lifetime occupation. He's not finished with any of us yet. You remember when God led His people out of Egypt into the land of promise? He had to, first of all, He had to drive out the people, the enemy in the land, to bring them in. So He drove them out and He'd bring them in. And the Scripture says that He brought them into the land from city to city. What he meant there was is that he didn't drive them all out at one time. He just gave them victory a city at a time. And this process of becoming like Jesus occurs a victory at a time. God gives you a victory by your submission to the Holy Spirit and He moves to the next degree of glory. And it is this process that goes on for a lifetime. Transformation. One final word, manifestation. The term image suggests manifestation. Now watch this carefully. The reason why God's final purpose, God's full purpose of saving us is to conform us into the image of His Son is that we might be manifestors of that image. 
Did you hear that? God doesn't conform us, make us like Jesus, so we can enjoy being like Jesus. God is at work to make us like Jesus so that other people will know what Jesus is like. Manifestors of that image. Now I said you can know when the thing is nearly over by connotation. Here it is. Unveiled face means that there is nothing between me and you with regard to the image of God. Hear me carefully here. There is to be nothing between me and you that would obstruct your view of Jesus in my life. And, and, and that's true of you, you see, with regard to me. Manifestors. Now, why did God put Adam and Eve on this earth? Well, He put Adam and Eve here, He put Adam here to be an extension of His presence. God could not be in the time-space arena in heaven at the same time. So He put Adam here to be an extension of His presence so that Adam could be uh, God, the extension of God on the earth. And He put Adam here to be an exhibit of His personality he needed somebody in the earth, in the time-space arena, that could tell people or show people or reveal people, manifest to people what God was like. And he put Adam here in order to be an exhibit of God's power. And that's why he gave him dominion over everything in heaven and earth. Now, Adam messed up. That's a good term for it. He was not the extension of God's presence. He ran from God. He was not the exhibition of His personality. He hid Himself. A few years ago, I was standing in line to get into a, going to eat at a Baptist encampment. I heard two ladies talking behind me. They were talking about a subject often discussed, their preacher. And I could tell they weren't that crazy about him. He, he was kind of new. And one of them said, you know, he said, uh, she said, uh, I was trying to tell my preacher about my grandchild. I thought, oh, great. She said, I asked him, have you seen a picture? Have I shown you a picture of my grandbaby? And he said, oh, and I really do appreciate it. So, <laughs> and I knew he had already messed up. And she said, well, I, I, I asked him, I said, don't you think that, that, that he's beautiful? And he said... Well, this is the crowning blow. He said, there aren't any pretty babies except mine. Now, that is not a wise, <laughs> a, a wise thing to say. Well, what do you say? I mean, you're standing there and you're looking in this glass, a little baby, and the father's standing there by you. And this is the ugliest kid you've ever seen. And he says, well, pastor, what do you think? What are you going to do, lie? You know, I, I figured out the right thing to say. You say, he looks just like you. you know, and, 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 you know, and here's this ugly kid, uh, and, 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 you, and you, you just say, he looks just like you. And he just feels so proud, and you just gained yourself a friend right there. Now, now, one day, God peeked out over the battlements of heaven, and he saw Adam down there, and he said, there he is, just like me just like me, an exhibition of my, a, 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 an exhibit of my personality 
an expression of my personality, an exhibit of my power. And then the day came when he messed up. And then came the second Adam, an extension of his presence, God in flesh, an expression of his personality, and we beheld him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth an exhibit of his power over demons and death. Now you ask me, you, you answer me if there's any other reason why God saved you but to make you like his son for those same reasons. An extension of his presence so that where people are, they sense God. And you, where you are with people, they sense God. An expression of His personality so that wherever you are, there's nothing between you and your and, and God radiating in your life. An exhibit of His power in dominion, authority, and as more than conquering. You, you, you tell me, is there any other reason why you were saved? To be manifestors of Him. Now the sad fact is, is that Moses, and this is in the text, by the way, in the context. You remember when Moses went up there and he got up there and he had that encounter with God and he came back and put that veil on his, flat, on his face because the people couldn't stand to look upon that glory that was radiating or was reflecting from Moses. And there came a day, the Scripture says, look, let's just look at it here. Um, and are not as Moses... Verse 13, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And there came a time in Moses' life when he had the veil on his face not because the glory was there, but because the glory was fading away. Let me ask you this. Are you willing for the veil to be removed from your face. And if the veil is removed from your face, would others see a fading experience? Most graphic illustration of what I'm trying to say is one I heard years ago about a young couple who worked with navigators who went to Libya when Libya was still open for some kind of evangelical work. And they went to, to Libya as missionaries, of the, uh, as, as evangels of, of the Navigator's Ministry of Discipleship. And this young man worked and served God in a most difficult place, 100% Muslim. And one day... After they'd been there about five years, this young couple, they had a child, and this man unexpectedly died. And one day, in the grief, the day of his death, this dear wife was trying to make some kind of preparation to get his body home and come back to the States in that, in that environment. And she heard a knock on the door. And she went to the door, and she recognized three... Muslim leaders of their city. And they said, We've come for the body of your husband. 
She said, oh, well, now, wait, just hold on there. She said, I'm taking his body back to the States for burial. They said, we have come for the body of your husband. We want to bury him in our cemetery, in our place of burial. And she said, well, I must, I must refuse that request. I cannot allow that. I'm taking him back to the States. And she was fearful even of her own life. One of these Muslims looked at her and said, that's the problem with you Christians. For 2,000 years you have waited for the Messiah to come. And when He came, you didn't even know it. What that Muslim was saying was this. This man has to be the Jesus you've been looking for. And so Paul said, we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror image and are being changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit into that same image so that others can look at us and say, this is the Jesus I've read about here. Let's pray together. Our Father, now begin that work in our heart as we submit ourselves to Him, our Holy Spirit. For I pray in Jesus' name and ask it for His sake. There are three invitations. Invitation for you this morning to receive Christ as your personal Savior. The wonder of the gospel is this is that by faith you can open up your life to the very presence of the Lord Himself, to Jesus Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your spirit. Would you do that today by simple faith? Receive Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit by invitation. You ask Him in prayer to come into your life forgive your sin, come to indwell you. There might be someone this morning who needs to respond for rededication of his or her life, or you may need to come and place your life in the fellowship of our church. The first step in serving God is a step of obedience to present revelation. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.